0: The following contains situations and circumstances that are relatable to all women, but are still uncomfortable and sometimes quite awful. We don't pull any punches. Listener discretion is advised. Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change Turn this ship another way Feel it in the darkness Sailing right into those jagged cliffs Yeah Some say we've always been insane Hey, life's a foolish game Life's a foolish game Phyllis Gardner and Elizabeth Holmes, The Doctor and the Dropout. In the early 2000s, no one could predict the impact each would have on the other. Welcome to Frenemies, a Toil and Trouble Media original. On this show, we examine notable women and the rivalries that helped define them. Today, we continue our story of Phyllis Gardner and Elizabeth Holmes and take a look at what took their relationship from professor and pupil to skeptic and scammer. By 2007, Theranos was valued at $200 billion, and yet no one knew the device they were merging didn't work. Elizabeth never strayed far from campus in her efforts to recruit lab technicians and other employees. She preferred them young, vibrant, impressionable, and inexperienced. Theranos frequently participated in job fairs around the area and managed to bring many into the fold. In the following years, Gardner would hear rumors about what the company was up to from people who had worked there. Even from the inside, it was shady. Virtually all of their business activity, including exactly how they achieved their tests, were concealed behind multiple layers of legal bureaucracy and technobabble under the guise of proprietary secrets. Confidentiality was woven into the DNA of the corporation. The only thing they seemed willing to communicate was the members of its board, the estimated value of the company, and Elizabeth's carefully crafted girl genius persona. And, of course, it's patents. In 2009, Elizabeth felt comfortable allowing Sunny to come out of the shadows and take his place as her chief operating officer, a sizable jump from the role of advising her from the privacy of their apartment. Together, he helped Elizabeth protect the sham, instilling a culture of secrecy and fear as real to the employees as the motivational phrases painted on the facility's walls. The employees were terrified of Sonny, who is said to have screamed and threatened whenever he felt like it. He did such a good job screaming at workers that no one suspected the two were a couple. Undoubtedly, they were too worried about keeping their jobs and avoiding Sonny's wrath to even think about it. When Gibbons continued to report internally that the machinery and lab equipment didn't work, he was sacked. He was told he wasn't needed if he couldn't be a team player. It stung, but after watching Elizabeth continue to lie to investors and pharmaceutical companies and file more patents, it really wasn't a stretch. By this point, she devolved her pitch to include giving faked and manipulated demonstrations. While wooing potential partner Novartis, she fooled the audience by simply using a competitor's commercial lab machinery with their logos camouflaged. What else could they do? It's not like they could use an Edison while anyone's watching. And the strategy of cranking out patents and intimidating employees into silence was working. By the end of 2010, Theranos had more than $92 million in venture capital, more than many legitimate companies in the field. In July 2011, Elizabeth was introduced to former Secretary of State George Schultz. For her, it was like getting a friend request from Elvis or the Pope. She must have been over the moon to get an audience with him to talk, and like always, the turtlenecks and patents played. After a two-hour meeting, Schultz was all in. He signed on to the board and recruited his buddies to do the same. Over the next few years, with his help, Theranos' board of directors eventually included Henry Kissinger, William Perry, James Mattis, Gary Ruffin, Bill Frist, Sam Nunn, Dick Kovacic, I have been dying to say that in a sentence, and Riley Betchel. With powerful supporters like that, more money followed. And Theranos' major investors expanded the who's who of industry, like Rupert Murdoch the Waltons, the DeVosses, the Coxes, and Carlos Slim. Silicon Valley gasped, but Phyllis was unimpressed. She later said, old men, I'm telling you, the brains go to their groin. And it's hard not to argue with her. Elizabeth had managed to keep this multi-million dollar racket going for eight years without anyone realizing her technology was a sham. Not even those closest to her. Her employees and department heads were just as in the dark as everyone else. Of course, she and Sunny had a plausible excuse. Theranos was operating in stealth mode. Virtually all of their business activity, including exactly how they achieved their tests, were concealed behind multiple layers of dreams, lies, and bullshit. Or, as Sunny and Elizabeth would insist, proprietary secrets. Flying under the radar provided limitless advantages. She could avoid the usual critique and public scrutiny. She didn't have to issue media releases or a company website. She didn't have to worry about the press or some pesky podcast host throwing shade. With Theranos in such a super serious, super secret status, she didn't have to tell anyone what she was doing, not in the least. And the mystery and generated excitement gave her board and investors something else to hang on to besides an ever-growing number of patents. It gave them certainty. Stealth Mode gave them an excuse not to know everything and still be sure they were right. Elizabeth continued her cloak and dagger routine until September of 2013 when the company announced a partnership with Walgreens to launch in-store blood sample collection centers. After getting the drug chain to pony up a whopping $140 million for the project, Theranos opened 40 wellness centers inside stores in Arizona, selling more than 1.5 million blood tests to 176,000 customers. Rather, more than 1.5 million blood tests to 176,000 actual medical patients. But it came at a cost. Days before he was scheduled to testify in a patent lawsuit involving his former employer, Gibbons took his own life. His death was a devastating loss to the scientific community and his wife, who never forgot the pain he endured in his final years and those responsible. But the scientist left one more invention behind. A whistleblower's report he'd shared with Wall Street Journal investigative reporter John Kerryu. In it, Gibbons detailed his experience at Theranos, his inability to make the technology work the way Elizabeth was telling the public it already did, and his potential threat to patients. And in true scientific style, he backed it up with evidence. He didn't live to see it, but his critical insider knowledge changed everything. For all intents and purposes, Elizabeth shook off the inconvenience and prepared to greet her public. Revolutionizing medicine required sacrifice and chutzpah. Some people just weren't cut out for it. But while Gibbon's loved ones mourned his loss, she granted an interview to Medscape's editor-in-chief, who praised her for this, quote-unquote, phenomenal rebooting of laboratory medicine. The media attention continued the next year when Elizabeth appeared on the covers of Forbes, Fortune, Inc., and T, the New York Times-style magazine. Theranos's value skyrocketed to $9 billion when Forbes named her the world's youngest self-made female billionaire and ranked her number 110 on the Forbes 400. She wasn't going to win any accolades for her explanations. She even claimed to have overcome those pesky biological limitations, utilizing a nonsensical process of miniaturization and automation. Phyllis felt like barfing all over the place. Magazine covers allowed Elizabeth to raise more than $400 million in venture capital, and by the end of 2014, Elizabeth's name appeared on 18 more U.S. patents and 66 foreign patents. Magazine covers allowed Elizabeth to raise more than $400 million in venture capital, and by the end of 2014, Elizabeth's name appeared on 18 U.S. patents and 66 foreign ones. When students began approaching Billis with questions about the famous dropout and suggestions to invite her to speak, the professor emphatically refused. She told them she would sooner see Elizabeth in jail. She was furious that these young students were idolizing her. A lazy, entitled twit who endangered people's lives just so that she could play Silicon Valley superstar. Each time she snapped, the students would flinch and look at her with suspicion. They just didn't get it. What's worse, they might have even thought Elizabeth's approach was right. Why not fake it till you make it? After all, no one stopped her. How many of her young students would walk away with that lesson? And Phyllis had to agree. Theranos was able to conduct faulty medical tests under a loophole in the FDA regulations, claiming that their tests were laboratory-developed. This classification meant Theranos didn't have to submit data to the FDA or apply for permission before using the tests on patients. They didn't need FDA oversight or approval at all. Now, industry experts claim that this is a common practice for laboratory testing companies, those whose business it is to invent and improve testing techniques, but the other companies using this shortcut are at least using actual working equipment. Once again, Elizabeth ignored all that, continuing to upsell her shady tech and hide the truth of her testing capabilities. With flashy sounding equipment, a closet full of black turtlenecks, and a stack of patents, she went on to raise more money and increase the company's value. But Phyllis was beginning to find others that felt the same way she did. People like Richard Fuse and Rochelle Gibbons. Rochelle was Ian Gibbons' widow. Fuse was in the middle of a nasty dispute with Elizabeth over, you guessed it, patents. Both were looking for answers, for justice. But like Phyllis were hip deep in the Theranos love fest, wondering why they were the only ones to see through it. When Fuse reached out to Phyllis, she didn't hold back. She told him she didn't know what Elizabeth was up to, but she didn't trust her. The three formed a little cabal, exchanging news and information. The partnership with Walgreens was deeply troubling. They had to find a way to make others see that. Then Theranos got approval from the FDA to perform the tests for herpes. The theoretical problem that Felicita always feared was now real. While Phyllis and her friends were stressing over the potential implications of a regulatory body's rubber stamp, Elizabeth continued to be bestowed accolades and honors for her contributions to medicine and entrepreneurial activities. She was recognized as one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Forbes awarded her the Under 30 Doers Award and ranked her as number 73 on its list of World's Most Powerful Women. Glamour made her their Woman of the Year. Bloomberg made her one of their 50 Most Influential Members. She received an honorary doctorate from Pepperdine. The Horatio Alger Association presented her with the group's 2015 award. And Harvard appointed her to their Medical School Board of Fellows, the same board Phyllis belonged to. The timing of her application made it so Phyllis couldn't prevent it from being considered. By the time she was able to verbally oppose it, it was too late. Her colleagues shrugged it off. Who wouldn't want such an esteemed inventor and businesswoman on the board? Honestly, neither would Phyllis. If only they'd found a real one to offer the seat to. Elizabeth didn't stop there. She was instrumental in drafting and passing a law in Arizona allowing people to obtain and pay for lab tests without insurance or health care provider approval. She negotiated agreements with the Cleveland Clinic, Capitol Blue Cross, a merrill hell to conduct their blood tests. And she partnered with Carlos Slim to enhance blood testing services in Mexico. The deals resulted in a personal net worth of over 4.5 billion. And she introduced the Iron Sisters hashtag to support women in STEM. Imagine setting herself up as a role model for young women, telling them they could be like her, all the while racking up patents and fraudulently representing the accuracy of her device. That's not STEM. That's crap. As Theranos continued to grow, so did their employee roster, to the tune of over 800 workers with no more idea of what the company did than the public. Phyllis continued to publicly complain about the runways and receptions and the love fest paid to the youngest female multibillionaire blah 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 but she found that mostly it was just the people around her. Probably in much the same manner as the internal whistleblowers that started to emerge. Whistleblowers like Erica Chung and George Schultz's grandson, Tyler. Neither were very experienced when they hired with the company, but they knew enough to understand things weren't right. Both withstood personal threats and corporate intimidation, but refused to give in. When they were approached by Wall Street Journal reporter John Carryou to comment, they agreed. Officially claiming he was acting on an anonymous tip, Carryou had reached out to every naysayer he found, including Phyllis. For her, it was like the cavalry had come in at last. She couldn't wait to tell him everything, and in true style, did exactly that. She allowed him to quote and cite her, giving him permission to publish her name, Theranos' corporate thugs might have been able to scare some kids, but if they thought they were going to shut her up, they were in for a surprise. CareU's resulting bombshell article, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, laid everything bare. The secrecy, lies and intimidation, the shoddy practices and inaccurate results, the fact that the company was using commercially available machines manufactured by other companies for most of its testing and Phyllis's expert assertion that the technology didn't work. In an iconic and completely awkward coincidence, the day the article broke, Phyllis was scheduled to attend a meeting of the Harvard Medical Board School of Fellows. Yeah, that Harvard Medical School Board of Fellows. Oops. Throughout the meeting, Phyllis sat on the opposite side of the room, keeping her distance. She managed to make it through the entire thing without having to exchange a word. Elizabeth appeared unfazed, and she attended the meeting and several more that day. She then took a break to dispute the report on CNBC's Mad Money. Mission accomplished, she had dinner, probably mentally regrouped, and learned she was dismissed from the board. But Phyllis didn't want the board of fellows to miss out on the hefty donation they were expecting from Elizabeth's appointment. Remember those Theranos shares her husband saved as a souvenir? They offered to gift them to the college, but the way things were rapidly unfolding, Harvard refused—probably for the best. Carrie's Wall Street article blew Elizabeth's turtlenecked facade wide open, and other news outlets began looking into it as well. Emboldened, other employees came forward with their own experiences, as did business associates. wasn't long before federal regulators came knocking, too. What was worse, so did alarmed investors. Publicly confronted with the evidence, Elizabeth tried her best to squash speculation, doubling down on her lies. She denied everything, calling the journal a tabloid. She assured patient, regulator, and investor alike that Theranos would publish data on the accuracy of its tests. On Mad Money... Host Jim Kramer admitted the article was pretty brutal, to which she responded, this is what happens when you work to change things. First, they think you're crazy. Then they fight you. Then all of a sudden, you change the world. Well, she did do that. By 2016, the cracks in Theranos started to form, and employees had become increasingly confused and skeptical. Elizabeth tried to squelch things as best she could, claiming the attacks were personal, attributed to her age, her gender, and her lofty corporate mission. She tried to tell them to stay focused and that everything would eventually blow over. But they saw the news, read the articles, and listened to the concerns of friends and family. No doubt many had loved ones whose lives would be irreparably harmed if even a fraction of these allegations proved to be true. Maybe for some, those reports served to confirm their own suspicions. In January, after inspecting the company's laboratory in Newark, California, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services sent a warning letter highlighting deficiencies in staff proficiency, procedures, and equipment. Regulators recommended a two-year ban on Elizabeth from owning or operating a certified clinical laboratory due to Theranos' failure to address the problems. That March... Probably to reclaim the narrative, Elizabeth appeared on the Today Show, where she expressed her devastation and admitted the issues uncovered should have been addressed more quickly. She added that the company had already taken steps to bounce back with the help of a new scientific and medical advisory board. I wonder if Phyllis and her husband got an invite. Probably not. In June, Forbes revised its valuation of Theranos to $800 million, which was still a lot, but it was nothing like Elizabeth needed to satisfy their debts. The testing company was hemorrhaging money. Her major investors were protected, owning preferred shares, theirs would be paid first. But the owners of common stock like her, the damage made hers and other common stockholders worthless and left her reportedly owing her own company about $25 million in connection with the exercising her stock options. Where was a new patent when she needed it? Talk show interviews and past awards weren't enough to save her from federal scrutiny. In July, the CMS followed through with their regulators' recommendations. Soon after, the FDA ordered the company to stop using its nanotainer devices, one of its core inventions. The moves were devastating. Elizabeth and her company appealed the decision to a U.S. Department of Health and Human Services appeals board, but the damage had already been done. Walgreens terminated its partnership and closed its in store blood collection centers. In October, amidst mounting pressures, Theranos dismissed 340 employees, and Sonny, who was under investigation himself, left the company. While Elizabeth claimed she fired him, he insisted he left on his own accord. Like so many other parts of their relationship, the exact circumstances of his exodus remain unclear. Did they think they could just bail and walk away like Theranos was a lemonade stand or something? I don't know if they really accepted the ramifications of the fraud they perpetrated. They not only misled the media, their investors and business partners, they played loose and fast with the public's trust with science and the healthcare system. Their actions held long-term ramifications over people's lives. Their apparent intent to make a quiet getaway and put all of this behind them seems to indicate a whole lot of cognitive dissonance with that. Of course, I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist, but I'm not running around in a black turtleneck pretending like I am either. By January, Theranos shelved an additional 155 employees, bringing the total number of job losses to over 500, and things were only getting worse. The state of Arizona filed a lawsuit alleging the company had sold 1.5 million blood tests Arizonans while withholding or misrepresenting vital information about those tests you know, like the fact they don't work. Other investigations into the company included an unspecified probe by the FBI and two class action lawsuits. While Elizabeth denied any wrongdoing, the coverage to emerge was shocking. Filings revealed that a woman had taken a Theranos blood test was wrongly told she'd miscarried. Another received a false positive result for an HIV test and another patient was instructed to stop taking their blood thinner medication based on an inaccurate report reported by Theranos. Probably the most devastating report discovered was that in 2007, Elizabeth knowingly arranged a fraudulent 15-month study that involved testing stage 3 and stage 4 cancer patients using the Edison device. Knowing full good and well, her patented tech was unreliable. After CMS determined the company's actions posed in, quote-unquote, immediate jeopardy to consumers, the company agreed to settle. The state's lawsuit was also settled in April of that year, with Theranos agreeing to reimburse the cost of the test to consumers and pay $225,000 in civil fines and additional fees, totaling $4.6 million. On May 16, 2017, nearly all of Theranos' shareholders agreed to dismiss all existing and potential lawsuits against the company in exchange for shares of preferred stock, and Elizabeth released a portion of her equity in the company to offset any drop in stock values was experienced. But what was that when compared to the lives her fake-it-till-you-make-it scheme ruined? In March of 2018, the Securities and Exchange Commission charged Elizabeth and Sonny with fraud for taking over $700 million from investors through false claims about the accuracy of Theranos' technology. It was the closest the SEC could come to calling them out. As part of her negotiated settlement, the former richest self made woman agreed to relinquish voting control of her company, return 18.9 million shares. Pay a $500,000 fine and accept a 10 year ban from serving as an officer or director of a public company. In June, following a two year investigation by the Northern District of California's U.S. Attorney's Office, a federal grand jury indicted both of them on nine counts of wire fraud and two counts of conspiracy to commit. During the hearing, prosecutors alleged that the duo engaged in two criminal schemes one to defraud investors another to defraud doctors and patients. Both pled not guilty. Following the indictment, Elizabeth finally stepped down as CEO of Theranos, but remained a chair on the board. Perhaps she was still holding out hope. Maybe she still refused to listen. In August, most of the remaining Theranos employees were let go and the company announced the following month it had begun the process to dissolve. Its remaining cash and assets were distributed between its many creditors. By the time Theranos finally shut down in October, its board members and preferred investors had lost millions. But Elizabeth is nothing if not resilient. In early 2019, she became engaged to Billy Evans, a 27-year-old heir to a group of hotels in San Diego. They reportedly married later that year in a private ceremony, although it's unclear if they're legally married. Sources still refer to him as her partner rather than her husband. The couple has two children, as of the time of this recording. There's no evidence to suggest that she utilized her revolutionary technology as part of her prenatal care. After being delayed for the COVID pandemic and her pregnancy, Elizabeth's trial for defrauding investors began on August 31, 2021. It concluded in January when she was found guilty on four counts of defrauding investors, but was acquitted of defrauding patients. On November 18, 2022, she was sentenced to serve just over 11 years in prison and three years of supervised release following her incarceration. With good behavior, she could be released in less than 10 years. Following the conviction, it was reported that Elizabeth and her partner attempted to flee when they purchased one-way plane tickets to Mexico. But Elizabeth has claimed that those travel plans were made well ahead of her conviction and was pretty much bad timing she is serving her time in a minimum security federal prison camp in Texas. As for Phyllis, she's just glad to see Elizabeth unable to sham the world or endanger patients anymore. Stay tuned after the break for more about our girl, Elizabeth Holmes. In spite of her turtleneck, green drinks, and TED Talks, one of the most scrutinized aspects of Elizabeth Holmes' public persona is her voice which some say was notably deeper in public appearances than in private conversations. This has led to speculation that she deliberately lowered her tone in an attempt to be taken more seriously and perceived by wealthy supporters as more trustworthy and knowledgeable. And it's not as outlandish as you think. The pressure to conform to masculine norms in order to succeed in a male-dominated field is commonplace. Research has shown that women in leadership positions are often judged more harshly than men and to that end may need to adopt more assertive, dominant behaviors in order to be taken seriously. Speaking in a deeper voice, which is associated with masculinity and authority, is one way to do it. In a 2018 study published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, researchers found that people tend to associate deeper voices with traits like dominance, strength, and leadership. In contrast, higher-pitched voices are often associated with youthfulness, femininity, and vulnerability. These associations are deeply ingrained into our cultural consciousness, whether we're aware of it or not. Ultimately, The reasons behind Elizabeth's decision about what to wear and how to speak are complex, and it's difficult to say for certain what motivated her. But what is clear is that the impact of her deception goes way beyond the realm of her crimes and the damage inflicted upon Theranos' investors and patients. It has significant societal implications, particularly for women in science, business, and technology. By presenting a false image of herself and her company, Elizabeth contributed to the erosion of trust in women's abilities and competencies. As if the hashtag Iron Sisters didn't have enough to deal with. Competing in male dominated industries is hard. Besides facing greater scrutiny for silly things like not having a man voice, women are judged on their appearance, demeanor, and countless female factors. This has made it more difficult for women to gain credibility and respect long before Elizabeth's rise to power and her tale serves only to reinforce it. Justifiably widespread coverage of her fraudulent behavior has led to a loss of faith in female leaders, perpetuating the idea that women are not as trustworthy or competent. Even now, its ripple effect can be felt throughout the industry and beyond. Her defense focused on emotions and mental state rather than the facts of the case, reinforcing the idea that women aren't capable of making rational decisions or leading effectively, as did her defense's arguments that she was just a timid young undergrad kept in the dark and manipulated by a domineering older man. Even if her arguments are not accepted by the court as grounds for acquittal, their very emergence validates those stereotypes and can make it even more difficult for other female leaders to be taken seriously. As Elizabeth surrenders to serve her sentence and put the chapter of Theranos behind her, she leaves scores of bright women with new challenges of how to move past her themselves. And that's really kind of sad. This has been Frenemies. Thanks for listening. Frenemies is an original production of Toil and Trouble Media, executive produced by Jennifer Beck. This episode was also written and performed by Jennifer Beck. I'm kind of a big deal. Additional production assistance was provided by Aaron Iris and David Beck, and our music was performed by Snowflake and Admiral Bob. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell your friends. It helps us rise above the crap. And check out our website at toilandtroublemedia.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Threads. We're also on Patreon, and we have a YouTube channel if you want even more Toil and Trouble Media in your life. I lost control of those outlets a long time ago, so you never know what you're going to find. They're kind of like herding cats. And as always, thanks for listening.